Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 80. 80! Oh my god, we're octogenarians, Sam! Of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that absolutely everything, and I really do mean everything, and if you haven't got the point yet, you should listen to the other 79 podcasts. Everything has a history, like wine, coffee, or beer, or drinking, or or dribbling, or male, female, black, white, rich, poor, up, down, herbivore, carnivore. Nice. Yes, we're doing binaries. 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 Histories of binaries. Well, we're not doing that today, are we? <laughs> we are not doing that today. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of childhood is all about imagination, dreams and accidents, or that the history of turnips <laughs> is about... Ghosts and exorcism, think Jack Lanterns. Um, it's about the Industrial Revolution. Yep. And of course, it's about delicious soups. Oh. Turnip soup, nothing better. I can't wait to do those. Um, we should definitely do one whilst we're cooking. Oh, oh. How about that for an idea? I went to Barcelona recently, yep. as you know, came back armed with a 10-inch paella pan. Oh, good. I will cook us a paella while we're recording. Can we just cook a thousand rashes of bacon instead? No. Oh, as well. Okay. No. Um, you should listen to our podcast on recipes because that was yes, fun. That was a stonker. If you want to learn about the stemmer of a cassoulet. Mm. The man sitting opposite me is the Leonardo da Vinci of the historical helicopter. He's <laughs> 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 getting funnier and funnier. It's Brilliant. Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the saviour of historical prime time. Yeah. It is the truly wonderful, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. So each time, each week, we um, kind of cook up a plan to talk about. It has to be... Uh, reasonably unexpected or we have to do an unexpected take on something which is expected yes um this week was a bit of a mixture the two we're doing relics relics which is which is worth a chat this is going to be it an is certainly one. worth a chat and you've just been you've just been to china i haven't I've, you you've spent the whole year been. in china yeah um it seems I'm i'm making a new six part series of national geographic called relics of china mm. um and what was i've kind of really come home with here is that the Chinese meaning and understanding of the word relic, I think, is different to ours. Very. They they use it a lot. Um, if you talk about 
they kind of use the word relic that, uh, applying to all archaeological artifacts, as far as I can work So out. it's basically old stuff. And landscapes. Hey, oh, okay. Um, oh, that's nice. And palaces. Like, right. the, the Forbidden City, the, you know, the great right. 15th century massive palace in the middle of Beijing is a relic. So in the way that it's we... It's also full of relics. We might call it, we might talk about it as a heritage site, as heritage. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> right, Okay. But at the same time, they very specifically use the term relics to denote specific objects yep. which, with, with massive cultural or historical significance. And, you know, there's a, an, I forget what it's called now, but it's it's a, a department of relics or an institute okay. of relics or something which is government run. Okay. And they, they monitor the kind of... But it's secular like, rather than yeah. religious. Yeah, absolutely. So it is not it is not religious, but we I think we're going to be talking about... Um, so the religious connotations. We'll probably be talking about the religious connotations. I'm interested to hear all about your adventures in China. Do you have relics. like a person saying, I know we can we can tear this apart and say there are different ways of thinking about it. What do you think a relic is? Having been brought up as a good Catholic and having gone through all that sort of catechism, um, a very liberal uh, one, you know, there is a that strong Catholic orthodoxy and understanding of a relic is that it is a, it is an object that is associated with a a saint. Yeah, it's very very specific with, with isn't biblical it? biblical figures, and it is it's something to to venerate, and it's seen to have intercessory powers. Mm. Um, I I was one my my most uh, the strangest uh, experience I've ever had talking about relics was when I taught at Central Michigan University uh, over in the US in the middle of the hand in Michigan. And I was asked by the Wiccan Society, uh, so the, the Pagan Witches Society, uh, which was a charming uh, group of students uh, who, associated, who associated themselves uh, with such practices, asked me to come along and talk about relics. Uh, it was a bizarre sort of mix because they... they they affiliated with the local LGBT uh, society as well, so it was sort of it was sort of two groups who felt found themselves on the margins of of university life, yeah. and were ostracised by most people. Um, Did they want to hear about objects which were well, imbued with power? I gave, I went along and I gave them Catholic <laughs> orthodoxy for an hour on relics and reliquies and blah 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 blah. A lot of them took my medieval history courses, survey courses, so they. You know, they they wanted to hear that, and then afterwards, um, they had brought along their own relics. Wow! Um, which were, were all manner of things, and it was like it was sort of personal items that were imbued with different kinds of power. And I remember one of their strangest ones was, and it was quite touching actually. Somebody and they did a sort of show and tell, very American sort of you know schooly sort of you know you stand around and you, you each get your turn to show and tell. And somebody had one of those little troll dolls, right? And the troll doll lived in a box and the box lived on their bedside table and the <laughs> troll doll took away all the bad dreams ah. uh, and was a relic. I also got taught how to um, make it a relic? how to wait. Yes. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, I think they were they were being rather promiscuous with their definition of what a relic was. But relics were, for, you know, for them, sacred, special objects. I was also taught how to wave a, wave a wand yeah. in a particular way. So lots of wand practice as well hmm. for casting spell it was altogether a you know a weird experience altogether one rather, for which you are better rather weird may i experience. say myself but yes. i enjoy i enjoyed it they were a lovely they were a lovely group really interesting delightfully quirky yeah. experimental and you know that's that's always good always good it kind of highlights the general point to make is that this is the history of relics mm. 
I don't think people will be surprised that relics have something to do with history. I don't think that's particularly no, unexpected. No. But I think by drawing attention to the fact that relics, the word relic or what a relic is, is a different thing to different people across time. Yes. That becomes more, yes. more interesting. Across time and, and across cultures. Yeah. Yeah. What do relics mean to you? I think it's to do with an object being imbued with some kind of power. Yes. And whether that's uh, sort of a traditional Catholic way of looking at something. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about this sort of power of intercession. So if you have a, a, yeah. a relic associated with a saint, whether it's a bone or, or a piece of clothing or something like that. Foreskin or something. Something they, like they, that. They can James, be. Really? They can be. And know? then you, yeah. you either are in its presence or touch it. Yep. Then that gives you a kind of a direct route to God, I suppose, in some respects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other way of looking at it, I think, is, is as I said, we're going to be doing this with the Chinese. But um, there is some kind of concept of them having power. And relics are actually a really big thing in Chinese computer games as well. Um, that huh. you, you tend to go around collecting relics or, or relics of gods, particularly is okay. kind of a phrase that's used, and it's it's a, it's about finding something which somehow gives you power. Hmm. And I think that that's changed over time and in location. But uh, for me, that's I think that's got to be the sort of the bottom line of it. I think sort of stretching it to be a, a site or um, a, a, an entire landscape yeah. is stretching it a bit. Well, tell us about tell us about relics in tell us about your new series. Tell us about relics in China. It's a six part series, and it's divided into different aspects of Chinese life and society. So one is um, the the sky and the stars. So we're looking at old artifacts which were used for astronomy uh, and astrology as well, and then also comparing it with um, modern things as well. And there are other kind of concepts of the family, mm. um, <laughs> education, health. Right. And we were only sort of just sort of started doing it, but we're, we're traveling around doing that. I mean, it's it basically look, looking at old artifacts, old relics, and um, seeing how, how they link to the modern world and the, certainly the modern, modern Chinese society at the moment. Right. I've thought about relics for a long time, and they come up in the, they come up in the medieval world. They're huge, huge sort of um, huge thing. You know, this is when we have pre-Reformation, and the veneration of saints, pilgrimages, relics are all part of sort of traditional religious practice. And I've just got here a list of some of the relics in Reading Abbey's uh, collections. Uh, there is a wonderful. These are extant relics. They're not lost. They, they, they are. They, they are probably no longer surviving because okay. a lot of relic, a lot of medieval relics, would have been destroyed uh -huh. during the Reformation. But they are listed in a wonderful two-volume uh, book on the accounts of Reading Abbey, hmm. uh, edited by the brilliant uh, Brian Kemp. Brian, you are not a man, I imagine, who listens to podcasts. Nonetheless, I hope you are keeping well. <laughs> uh, wonderful retired Professor Emeritus at, at Reading. And in this collection, there are several categories of relics. Relics relating to our Lord, so to Christ, uh, a cross from Constantinople, gilt with gold offered to Christ. His foreskin, see, I told you about the foreskin, it's all about Christ's foreskin, which Emperor Constantine is stated to have sent to King Henry I. A piece of our Lord's shoe, blood and water from his side, several stones, pieces of rock and earth from Bethlehem and other places. Also, relics relating to the Virgin Mary, some of her hair in quotes, as it is thought, parts of her garments, of her bed, of her tomb, relics relating to the patriarchs, so church fathers and prophets, parts of the rods of Moses and Aaron, uh, part of the rock which Moses struck, manna from Mount Sinai, three teeth 
and bones from St. Simeon. But it goes on, relics from other apostles. They have the hand of St. James and the cloth in which it was wrapped, the robe of St. Thomas, a tooth of St. Luke, the evangelist. They have relics of the martyrs, confessors and virgins, the bones, teeth, hair, the arms, the fingers, the finger of St. Andrew and the heads of many. Was this all kept in one room? Or, no, I imagine it's all <laughs> dotted all over. An abbey would have had that. People would have made pilgrimage to come to it. These relics would have been trotted out at various sort of times. Tourism or drawing people oh, towards tourism, them is a really important part be, of relics. And, and, and the history of walking, you know, which we should do, Ooh, is about pilgrimage. I'd love to and do pilgrimages to these various places. Yeah, and what it means is there's a whole market place for this. There's a trade in relics. Yeah, which means people are buying them, people are selling yep. them, people are losing them, people are keeping them, people are protecting them, yep. people are stealing them. Yeah. The, the Dutch humanist Erasmus sarcastically said at one point, because people are rather suspicious of the, the whole relic trade, and, and there are a lot of sort of people making money out of it. He said that there were enough relics of the true cross in Europe uh, to make an entire ship, um, you know. So this is not to make light of of the the practice of of relics, uh, but there are those who abuse it and will make money of it. There's a medieval tale of a of a priest who sold a a a knight a bridle, saying that it once belonged to Christ. Hmm. <laughs> so people made people made money out of it. That's amazing. I mean, that's much more what I would sort of expect a relic to be. But um, yes. one of the things we did my last trip, yeah. I spent um, two weeks kind of in and around Beijing and we went down to Shandong province. I got a bullet train. That was one of the coolest Ooh. experiences of my life. Wow, fast. Um, it was ridiculously fast. Fine. So so fast that it would take us 15 minutes to get from Exeter to Paddington. <laughs> we went on 15 that minutes? 15. 15? One five. Oh my God, that's like 300 miles an hour or yeah. something silly. That's a kind of their top speed. Um, but Mount Tai, we climbed up Mount Tai, which is a mountain in Shandong province, and yep. it um, has been a place of worship for 3,000 years. And the Chinese consider that as a relic, like the entire mountain is a relic, which um, is extraordinary. And people still go up there, um, they they flock to it like like pilgrims. Right. Um, it was really interesting climbing up. So I was, I am 41 now, I was... Relatively relatively young to be accounted in the people climbing up Mount Tai when I went up. Really, there. when we arrived, there were loads of people came out of the um, sort of appearing at the bottom of the stairs with walking sticks and knee braces, and I was like, "What's wrong with them?" It was pathetic. Seven thousand steps. Have you seen Kung Fu Panda? I have. Oh God, yes. You know, you know the all three. You know that you know the bit at the beginning of Kung Fu Panda. He famously drags his noodle trolley yes, all the way up, all, the way up. all of those yes, steps. Yes, that's yes, Mount Tai. That's, oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I have okay. never been in so much oh, pain my in my life when I got to the top. I couldn't walk properly. So you're, it's it's seven it's like step aerobics for you. They're proper steps, so it's not just walking up a path. It's seven thousand actual steps, and they get steeper and higher the closer you get. And you're to the quite top. fit. I am quite fit. You swim regularly. Go to the gym. But, um, blah blah blah. Absolute agony. But interestingly, I think people expect to climb Mount Tai at some point in their life, right? And they all start feeling guilty about it when they're about sixty. <laughs> so most of the people were were twenty years older than me. Um, Goodness me! Which is interesting. There's not much at the top apart from pain and misery, and uh, and a temple. But it's one of those things that you need to do in your life to climb a sort of great. Yeah. Monument. You get to the top and then pray to get down. Um, they've got a cable car which takes you okay. down. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's really got me thinking about this is that they, they have that, they have, as I said before, the palace, which is kind of a seat of the Forbidden City, is kind yes. of seen as a relic. But then much more specifically, they have these items. And in fact, so here we are in the early 2000s, 2002, the State Administration of Cultural Heritage in China announced that it has a list of 64 cultural relics, as they're called, that are forbidden to be taken out of mainland China. And what are, what are they? Absolutely amazing. 64. Yeah, I wonder what they would be in the UK. So let me give you an example. Okay? What would they be in the UK? So we've got some Neolithic pottery here with um, an amazing um, image of a stork, a fish and a stone axe. There's another Neolithic uh, vessel showing an eagle. We've got a Shang dynasty. So this is about 1600 BC. Um, uh, it's a kind of a bronze coffin. Loads of other bronze pots and pans. <laughs> some bells. Um it's it's um any people any people's a, parts a crystal cup no these are these are what i think the chinese really think of as relics these are all objects most of them are bronze um some of them are kind of lacquered pictures some of them are painted silk some of them are musical instruments um but they are unique for one reason or another um, oh, the Gansu flying horse is one of my favourite things. Everyone should go and look. Just Google the Gansu flying horse. I've seen one of these. I saw something called the Herdzun, which is a large artefact for drinking wine out of. And it's got the earliest recorded um, writing that says China hmm. on it, um, which, is, which is a great thing. It was found in someone's backyard. Um, and then the Chinese <laughs> playfully and proudly... Um, admit to having bought it off the people who discovered it for about 30p. And now it's one of the most important artefacts in the whole of China. And then I oh, just gave them 30p for it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's like insured for sort of 45 billion or something. David Atten. Dave... The first time the oldest ever written <laughs> evidence for the word China is on the inside of this thing. David Attenborough. I think he'd be a relic that we should not allow out of That's the country. That's true, yeah. Anyway, none of these are people. Um, but I do, I do like this, and, and this this whole thing about them coming um, and not being allowed out of China at all links us to another um, interesting story. Did you hear about in America recently? Some some student snapped a thumb off one of the terracotta warriors in Washington. No, I didn't. What happened? 
So, um, uh, this, I, I, can, I can find his name here on the news. Michael Rohanna, 24, charged with theft after he allegedly broke off a thumb of one of the terracotta warriors, which is 2,000 years old, and put it in his pocket whilst visiting the Franklin Institute in Why Philadelphia. Why would you just want a, f- a thumb? Well, I suppose that you couldn't fit an entire warrior in your... You couldn't smuggle an entire warrior out. But um, the, the the Chinese are particularly nervous about lending things. And there's, um, yes, I, I, found, I found a list of Chinese relics which had been damaged whilst taken abroad, which which is itself interesting. Yes. And it usually happens once a year, around about the time of the anniversary of the looting of the Summer Palace in Beijing, 1860, right, right. when particularly French forces, but also British as well, um, set fire to and stole and looted everything that was in the old Summer Palace, which is one of the most sort of magnificent mm. palaces in Beijing, mm. just mm. further north of Beijing from the Forbidden City. Mm. And that's a really kind of complicated and interesting story because one of the things that they stole... And that was looted was watches, pocket mm. watches. This is 1860. Okay, they've been Chinese have been collecting stuff for hundreds of years, and one of the things they valued more than we would value it is the whole question of what is a relic. Yes. Were Western pocket watches? They had rooms full of watches. They still do. If you go to the Forbidden City now, there is something yes. called the Hall of Clocks and Watches. So the Chinese emperors at the time, from about the 16th, uh, so 17th and 18th centuries, were utterly obsessed with the quality of watch and clock making, which the Westerners achieved. And so they filled up their palaces with relics, which were then me. looted by the French, but then handed out like pocket change. So like, I don't want another watch. I don't want another... So, so people were kind of exchanging beautiful handmade gold pocket watches for <laughs> pence amongst the soldiers because they were Western soldiers and they didn't they didn't see them as relics. We should have done this in our in our episode on clocks. We should have done. We have done a wonderful one on clocks, but there you are. So th- that's yes. a, an example of a sort of valueless thing. Same principle, okay. So the other thing that the Chinese were massively You're warming to a theme. were massively impressed with is um was uh, ast- astronomy. So the Jesuits so Jesuit missionaries come across in the 17th century. So Catholic missionary priests. Right, yeah. Yep. They transform the Chinese understanding of the sky and the stars and the planets. And they bring with them all of these amazing new um, scientific instruments. You can see a lot of them at the Beijing Observatory. They are at the Beijing Ancient Observatory because they were given back by the French and the German governments after ah, they'd been stolen okay. Before, but they were handed back. So there's there's another part to this story which is really interesting. It's about what relics you're prepared to give back once you've looted them, which raises questions like the Rosetta Stone, the Elgin Marbles, all of this stuff, the Benin Bronzes in the British Museum, which were looted, but we're not giving them back. But we are, or have been, happy giving some things back, which weirdly are clocks and watches and uh, astronomical um, scientific instruments because we've got them ten a penny, <laughs> yeah, but not the Elgin marbles. <laughs> not the Elgin, not the Elgin marbles. But the, the, so the, there's this whole issue of, of you know you break into the Summer Palace and you think it's going to be full of Chinese stuff. It's not. It's full of Western stuff because they th- see them they're, as particularly powerful, sort of West, fascinating Western relics. They're Western relics, like a pair of Levi jeans yeah. in so, Russia. Um, but this has now become like a bit of a thing. So every year the Chinese, some kind of something will come up for auction, which was handed down from one of the soldiers that was there at the looting of the Summer Palace in 1860, and it's in Bonhams or Sotheby's, whatever. Mm. The Chinese say, oh, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be selling all this stuff. And often their estimation of what's stolen changes from, you know, 23,000 to 230,000 to 1.5 million. I don't think anyone really knows. But the point I wanted to make is that it's not all 
amazing Chinese heritage artifacts. There was a lot of stuff that was stolen that was already Western. It was greatly admired by the Chinese. And they are as resentful about those things being stolen as they are about their own heritage, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Good preserving relics. So what is, yeah, what is a relic? I want to go back to bones. Cool. When I was in Copenhagen at the art gallery there, I was wandering around the bookshop and stumbled across a book which had a really intriguing front cover. And it was of a skull encrusted in jewels. Mm. And the book was called Heavenly Bodies, Cult Treasures and Spectacular Saints from the Catacombs by the photographer Paul Kudananis, if I've pronounced that correctly. And it is a lavish book full of effectively skeletons. So I was interested in in this, and I thought about this when we were thinking that, about doing something about relics. And basically what he's done is he has gone and photographed a series of bejeweled skeletons throughout Switzerland, Bavaria and Austria. And it was a phenomenon that during the 17th and 18th centuries, there were all of these skeletons that were coming out of the catacombs in Rome um, and then were transported. You couldn't buy them because that was seen as sacrilegious. Transported across the Alps into these countries and then churches got hold of them, posed them in particular positions and then decorated them in the most sort of ornate way. I mean, there are some where you know, they've, they've put paper mache uh, faces over them and then left a hole for the nose with a with a sort of jewel in them. But just have a look at some of these. Wow. Have a look at that. Wow. I've never yeah. seen anything like that before. So, you're not, so carriages, um, you know, f- four figures together, sort of bedecked in, in yeah. jewels. They're dressed up skeletons. Yeah. And it is, again, part of this sort of idea of intercession. I mean, it's part creepy, part artwork, very sort of Germanic. Yeah. Um, Think of that guy who, I can't remember the name of him, but that guy who um, plastified bodies and then toured it around. Do you remember that? Yes, I do, I do, I do. The guy with the hat. Yes, yes, yes. I can't remember his name. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know what Um, you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. Gunther von Hagens Mm. uh, and his touring exhibitions. It's something something like that. But, you know, it's this idea of, of... of relics there, almost sort of decorative art. I think the key point here, this is really linked to the stuff of history, as we say, but uh, it's to do with respecting the past as well. It's it's not just respecting the past, it's about um, imbuing it with power. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this is what happens when the opposite of that is the case. And we talked a bit about theft of relics and everything. Yeah. So the Chinese Cultural Revolution, I'm going to be coming back to China a lot in the yes, next year I'm or so. I'm sure you are. But in the 60s, 66 to 76, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, you've got the Red Guards, Mao's Red Guards, just run riot. And they were systematically opposed to, systematically violently opposed to something they called the Four Olds. You heard of the Four no, Olds? No, I haven't, no. Uh, brilliant. So you Not have, up on my Chinese history. The Four Olds are, they were utterly committed to destroying these. And part of the Chinese current fascination in its history and desire to preserve it is to do with what happened in the 60s and 70s. It's really not very long ago. They're the four olds, old customs, old culture, old habits and old ideas. And they all had to be destroyed. Goodness me. So how do you go about destroying... Well, you smash stuff up and you dig yep. it up and you you, yeah, yeah. you hang hang bodies from trees and yep. things like that. Yep. So um, Confucius's tomb, for example, is um, it's, a, it's a very famous site where Confucius... 
So very famous sort of philosopher, yeah, yeah, yeah. wise sage, about 500 BC. That's now it's a World Heritage oh. site, one of the one of the most important tourism sites in China because the Confucian belief is is is, is massive. Um, so the Red Guards went straight there and destroyed it. So it's 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 not just his tomb there; it's it's also the tombs of of a hundred thousand of his followers yeah, it's, it's and of his supporters. The way the way in which you just sort of exorcise a nation's past yes in that way and you think about you think about the way that isis is deliberately doing that in the parts where it's you know where it, it it's it's whole seeking to hold influence going and destroying libraries manuscript collections yeah. you know and and often it is around around the world it is around heritage sites yeah. sites that are that in themselves can be seen as relics having some sort of meaning and power cultural or historical significance for a particular group of people you either go in and you appropriate them for yourself or you destroy them you erase them from history this is happening in modern day turkey okay for example there are certain sites that particularly religious sites temples that are very contested different sides are you know there are different factions that are this is ringing a bell 17th century essex 17th century somewhere some I'm going to be really vague, but it's damaging windows in churches and iconoclasm, iconoclasm, yep. but yep. also statues and but damaging statues in a very specific way, chopping off their hands and noses. Yep, yep. Uh, that's uh, that sounds. I mean, I don't know that the okay. exact example you're talking about, but but that idea of of destroying something. Yeah. So, for example, um, yeah, if we think about the 1650s. Cromwell. This is um, the time of the of the Republic, and there were groups that would would go around digging up aristocrats' relatives, and you know, and their tombs, and smashing them and destroying them as a sort of form of of, of protest. Yeah. Um, the destruction of relics during the Reformation was widespread because it was seen as as superstitious, and so what you did was you smashed. All the sort of superstitious trappings of a particular, yeah, form they did, of and they didn't necessarily just vanish. They were destroyed publicly, openly, and yep. they were often yep. broken, so yep. you could see yep. that they had been damaged. Yes, window. I mean, stained glass windows were smashed. You know, the trappings of the church would have been would have been smashed. Relics would have been taken. Book collections would have just been destroyed and bur- and we've done burning, haven't we? Yeah. And burning is part of it. And also um, destruction yep. of buildings. We did it in the lean. Yes. We were talking yes. about leaning walls and how often in castles, leaning walls are the results of being those castles being deliberately destroyed at the end of the Civil War. Yes. But not, not removed, left to be yes. shown to be unfunctional or to have been altered one way or yes. another. So it's the way in which a relic is... A relic is, is often a site of contest yes. between two, two parts. Interesting. One person's relic is another person's sort of something that is it's entirely provocation, fra- fraudulent and, and, oh, fraudulent, and a pro- yeah. provocation. Yeah, absolutely, a prov- provocation. Mm. A tinder keg. Yeah. Well, I, I love this. It's good. It is. Uh, more to relics than we thought. Um, I, I hope you've all enjoyed it. Old ships. Old underwater. ships. Underwater. The Mary Rose, a relic. The Vassa, Ooh. a relic. I mean, there's tons we could do on this. There is. We might come back to relics again. Yes. Um, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Uh, do we have leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts? That would be fabulous. It really helps. We are on Twitter. You can follow Sam at Dr. Sam Willis. You can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow Histories of the Unexpected on at Unexpected Pod. 
We are, we are, we are, we are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Lord Dan Snow, soon to be Lord Dan Snow, I imagine, uh, his History Hit Network and other great shows coming soon. We've got a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We've got a book coming out and we've got some live shows coming away as well. We so certainly do. We hope to see you in person. Check us out online, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.